0: Book One, Chapter Two, Part Two of Two of The Beautiful and Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Book One, Chapter Two, Portrait of a Siren. Part Two of Two. Turbulence. Anthony turned over sleepily in his bed greeting a patch of cold sun on his counterpane, crisscrossed with the shadows of the leaded window. The room was full of mourning. The carved chest in the corner, the ancient and inscrutable wardrobe, stood about the room like dark symbols of the obliviousness of matter. Only the rug was beckoning and perishable to his perishable feet. And Bounds, horribly inappropriate in his soft collar, was of stuff as fading as the gauze of frozen breath he uttered. He was close to the bed, his hand still lowered, where he had been jerking at the upper blanket, his dark brown eyes fixed imperturbably upon his master. Bows muttered the drowsy god, that you, Bows? It's I, sir. Anthony moved his head, forced his eyes wide, and blinked triumphantly. Bounds, yes, sir. Can you get off? Yow! Yeah. Oh, 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 God. "'Anthony yawned insufferably, "'and the contents of his brain seemed to fall together in a dense hash. "'He made a fresh start. "'Can you come around about four and serve some tea and sandwiches or something?' "'Yes, sir,' Anthony considered with chilling lack of inspiration. "'Some sandwiches,' he repeated helplessly. "'Oh, some cheese sandwiches and jelly ones and chicken and olive, I guess. "'Never mind breakfast.' "'The strain of invention was too much.' He shut his eyes wearily, let his head roll to rest inertly, and quickly relaxed what he had regained of muscular control. Out of a crevice of his mind crept the vague but inevitable spectre of the night before, but it proved in this case to be nothing but a seemingly interminable conversation with Richard Caramel, who had called on him at midnight. They had drunk four bottles of beer and munched dry crusts of bread, while Anthony listened to a reading of the first part of The Demon Lover. Came a voice now, after many hours— "'Anthony disregarded it as sleep closed over him, folded down upon him, "'crept into the byways of his mind. "'Suddenly he was awake, saying, "'What?' "'For how many, sir?' "'It was still Bounds, standing patient and motionless at the foot of the bed, "'Bounds who divided his manner among three gentlemen. "'How many what?' "'I think, sir. I'd better know how many are coming. "'I'll have to plan for the sandwiches, sir.' Two, muttered Anthony huskily lady and a gentleman bound said thank you sir and moved away bearing with him his humiliating reproachful soft collar reproachful to each of the three gentlemen who only demanded of him a third after a long time anthony arose and drew an opalescent dressing-gown of brown and blue over his slim pleasant figure with a last yawn he went into the bathroom and turning on the dresser light the bathroom had no outside exposure he contemplated himself in the mirror with some interest a wretched apparition, he thought. He usually thought so in the morning. Sleep made his face unnaturally pale. He lit a cigarette and glanced through several letters in the Morning Tribune. An hour later, shaven and dressed, he was sitting at his desk looking at a small piece of paper he had taken out of his wallet. It was scrawled with semi-legible memoranda. See Mr. Howland at five. Get haircut. See about Rivers' bill. Go bookstore. And, under the last... Cash in bank, six hundred and ninety dollars, crossed out, six hundred and twelve dollars, crossed out, six hundred and seven dollars. Finally, down at the bottom, and in a hurried scrawl, Dick and Gloria Gilbert for tea. This last item brought him obvious satisfaction. His day, usually a jelly-like creature, a shapeless, spineless thing, had attained Mesozoic structure. It was marching along surely, even jauntily, toward a climax, as a place should, as a day should. He dreaded the moment when the backbone of the day should be broken, when he should have met the girl at last, talked to her, then bowed her laughter out the door, returning only to the melancholy dregs in the teacups and the gathering staleness of the uneaten sandwiches. There was a growing lack of colour in Anthony's days. He felt it constantly, and sometimes traced it to a talk he had had with Maury Noble a month before. That anything so ingenuous, so priggish, as a sense of waste should oppress him, was absurd, But there was no denying the fact that some unwelcome survival of a fetish had drawn him three weeks before down to the public library, where, by the token of Richard Caramel's card, he had drawn out half a dozen books on the Italian Renaissance. That these books were still piled on his desk in the original order of carriage, that they were daily increasing his liabilities by twelve cents, was no mitigation of their testimony. They were cloth and Morocco witnesses to the fact of his defection. Anthony had had several hours of acute and startling panic. In justification of his manner of living there was first, of course, the meaninglessness of life. As aides and ministers, pages and squires, butlers and lackeys to this great khan, there were a thousand books glowing on his shelves, there was his apartment and all the money that was to be his when the old man up the river should choke on his last morality. From a world fraught with the menace of debutantes and the stupidity of many Geraldines, he was thankfully delivered—rather should he emulate the feline immobility of Morrie, and wear proudly the cumulative wisdom of the numbered generations. Over and against these things was something which his brain persistently analyzed and dealt with as a tiresome complex, but which, though logically disposed of, and bravely trampled underfoot, had sent him out through the soft slush of late November to a library which had none of the books he most wanted. It is fair to analyze Anthony as far as he could analyze himself. Further than that, it is, of course, presumption. He found in himself a growing horror and loneliness. The idea of eating alone frightened him. In preference, he dined often with men he detested. Travel, which had once charmed him, seemed at length unendurable, a business of color without substance, a phantom chase after his own dream's shadow. If I am essentially weak, he thought, I need work to do, work to do it worried him to think that he was after all a facile mediocrity with neither the poise of maury nor the enthusiasm of dick it seemed a tragedy to want nothing and yet he wanted something something he knew in flashes what it was some path of hope to lead him toward what he thought was an imminent and ominous old age after cocktails and luncheon at the university club anthony felt better he had run into two men from his class at harvard and in contrast to the grey heaviness of their conversation his life assumed colour both of them were married one spent his coffee time in sketching an extra nuptial adventure to the bland and appreciative smiles of the other both of them he thought were mr gilbert's embryo the number of their yeses would have to be quadrupled their natures crabbed by twenty years then they would be no more than obsolete and broken machines pseudo-wise and valueless nursed to an utter senility by the women they had broken ah he was more than that as he paced the long carpet in the lounge after dinner pausing at the window to look into the harried street he was anthony patch brilliant magnetic the heir of many years and many men this was his world now and that last strong irony he craved lay in the offing with a stray boyishness he saw himself a power upon the earth with his grandfather's money he might build his own pedestal and be a talleyrand a lord the clarity of his mind its sophistication its versatile intelligence all at their maturity and dominated by some purpose yet to be born would find him work to do on this minor his dream faded work to do he tried to imagine himself in congress rooting around in the litter of that incredible pigsty with the narrow and porcine brows he saw pictured sometimes in the rotogravure sections of the sunday newspapers those glorified proletarians babbling blandly to the nation the ideas of high-school seniors little men with copy-book ambitions who by mediocrity had thought to emerge from mediocrity into the lustreless and unromantic heaven of a government by the people and the best the dozen shrewd men at the top egotistic and cynical were content to lead this choir of white ties and wire-collar buttons in a discordant and amazing hymn compounded of a vague confusion between wealth as a reward of virtue and wealth as proof of vice, and continued cheers for God, the Constitution, and the Rocky Mountains. Lord Verulam, Talleyrand. Back in his apartment the grayness returned. His cocktails had died, making him sleepy, somewhat befogged, and inclined to be surly. Lord verulam he? The very thought was bitter. Anthony Patch, with no record of achievement, without courage, without strength to be satisfied with truth when it was given him. Oh, he was a pretentious fool! making careers out of cocktails and, meanwhile, regretting, weakly and secretly, the collapse of an insufficient and wretched idealism. He had garnished his soul in the subtlest taste, and now he longed for the old rubbish. He was empty, it seemed, empty as an old bottle. The buzzer rang at the door. Anthony sprang up and lifted the tube to his ear. It was Richard Caramel's voice, stilted and facetious. Announcing Miss Gloria Gilbert! THE BEAUTIFUL LADY. "'How do you do?' he said, smiling and holding the door ajar. Dick bowed. "'Gloria, this is Anthony.' "'Well,' she cried, holding out a little gloved hand. Under her fur coat her dress was Alice Blue, with white lace crinkled stiffly about her throat. "'Let me take your things.' Anthony stretched out his arms, and the brown mass of fur tumbled into them. "'Thanks. What do you think of her, Anthony?' Richard Caramel demanded barbarously. "'Isn't she beautiful?' "'Well!' cried the girl, defiantly, withal unmoved. She was dazzling, alight. It was agony to comprehend her beauty in a glance. Her hair, full of a heavenly glamour, was gay against the winter colour of the room. Anthony moved about, magician-like, turning the mushroom lamp into an orange glory. The stirred fire burnished the copper andirons on the hearth. "'I'm a solid block of ice,' murmured Gloria casually, glancing around with eyes whose irises were of the most delicate and transparent bluish-white. What a slick fire! We found a place where you could stand on an iron bar grating, sort of, and it blew warm air up at you, but Dick wouldn't wait there with me. I told him to go on alone and let me be happy. Conventional enough, this. She seemed talking for her own pleasure, without effort. Anthony, sitting at one end of the sofa, examined her profile against the foreground of the lamp the exquisite regularity of nose and upper lip, the chin, faintly decided, balanced beautifully on a rather short neck. On a photograph she must have been completely classical, almost cold, but the glow of her hair and cheeks, at once flushed and fragile, made her the most living person he had ever seen. "'Think you've got the best name I've heard,' she was saying, still apparently to herself. Her glance rested on him a moment, and then flitted past him, to the Italian bracket-lamps clinging like luminous yellow turtles at intervals along the walls, to the books, row upon row, then to her cousin on the other side. "'Anthony, Patch, only you ought to look sort of like a horse, with a long, narrow face, and you ought to be in tatters.' "'That's all the Patch part, though. How should Anthony look?' "'You look like Anthony,' she assured him seriously. He thought. She had scarcely seen him. "'Rather majestic,' she continued, and solemn.' "'Anthony indulged in a disconcerted smile. "'Only I like alliterative names,' she went on. "'All except mine. Mine's too flamboyant. "'I used to know two girls named Jinx, though, "'and just think if they'd been named anything except what they were named. "'Judy Jinx and Jerry Jinx. Cute, what? Don't you think?' "'Her childish mouth was parted, awaiting a rejoinder. "'Everybody in the next generation,' suggested Dick, "'will be named Peter or Barbara.' because at present all the piquant literary characters are named peter or barbara anthony continued the prophecy of course gladys and eleanor having graced the last generation of heroines and being at present in their social prime will be passed on to the next generation of shop girls displacing ella and stella interrupted dick and pearl and jewel gloria added cordially and earl and elmer and minnie and then i'll come along remarked dick and picking up the obsolete name, Jewel, I'll attach it to some quaint and attractive character, and it'll start its career all over again. Her voice took up the thread of subject, and wove along with faintly upturning, half-humorous intonations for sentence ends, as though defying interruption, and intervals of shadowy laughter. Dick had told her that Anthony's man was named Bounds. She thought that was wonderful. Dick had made some sad pun about Bounds doing patchwork, But if there was one thing worse than a pun, she said, it was a person who, as the inevitable comeback to a pun, gave the perpetrator a mock-reproachful look. "'Where are you from?' inquired Anthony. He knew, but beauty had rendered him thoughtless. "'Kansas City, Missouri.' They put her out the same time they barred cigarettes. "'Did they bar cigarettes?' "'I see the hand of my holy grandfather.' "'He's a reformer or something, isn't he?' "'I blush for him.' "'So do I,' she confessed. I detest reformers, especially the sort who tried to reform me. Are there many of those? Dozens. It's, oh, Gloria, if you smoke so many cigarettes, you'll lose your pretty complexion. And, oh, Gloria, why don't you marry and settle down? Anthony agreed emphatically, while he wondered who had had the temerity to speak thus to such a personage. And then, she continued, there are all the subtle reformers who tell you the wild stories they've heard about you and how they've been sticking up for you. He saw, at length, that her eyes were grey, very level and cool, and when they rested on him he understood what Maury had meant by saying she was very young and very old. She talked always about herself as a very charming child might talk, and her comments on her tastes and distastes were unaffected and spontaneous. I must confess, said Anthony gravely, that even I've heard one thing about you. Alert at once, she sat up straight those eyes, with the grayness and eternity of a cliff of soft granite, caught his. "'Tell me. I'll believe it. I always believe anything anyone tells me about myself, don't you?' "'Invariably,' agreed the two men in unison. "'Well, tell me. I'm not sure that I ought to,' teased Anthony, smiling unwillingly. She was so obviously interested, in a state of almost laughable self-absorption. "'He means your nickname,' said her cousin." "'What name?' inquired Anthony, politely puzzled. Instantly she was shy. Then she laughed, rolled back against the cushions, and turned her eyes up as she spoke. "'Coast to coast, Gloria!' Her voice was full of laughter, laughter undefined as the varying shadows playing between fire and lamp upon her hair. "'Oh, Lord!' Still, Anthony was puzzled. "'What do you mean?' "'Me, I mean. That's what some silly boys coined for me.' Don't you see anthony explained dick traveler of a nationwide notoriety and all that isn't that what you've heard she's been called that for years since she was 17 anthony's eyes became sad and humorous who's this female methuselah you've brought in here a caramel she disregarded this possibly rather resented it for she switched back to the main topic what have you heard of me something about your physique oh she said coolly disappointed that all Your tan." "'My tan?' She was puzzled. Her hand rose to her throat, rested there an instant, as though the fingers were feeling variants of colour. "'Do you remember Maury Noble, man you met about a month ago? You made a great impression.' She thought a moment. "'I remember, but he didn't call me up.' "'He was afraid to, I don't doubt.' It was black-dark without now, and Anthony wondered that his apartment had ever seemed grey. So warm and friendly were the books and pictures on the walls, and the good bounds offering tea from a respectful shadow, and the three nice people giving out waves of interest and laughter back and forth across the happy fire. Dissatisfaction On Thursday afternoon Gloria and Anthony had tea together in the grill-room at the plaza. Her fur-trimmed suit was grey, because with grey you have to wear a lot of paint, she explained and a small toque sat rakishly on her head, allowing yellow ripples of hair to wave out in jaunty glory. In the higher light it seemed to Anthony that her personality was infinitely softer. She seemed so young, scarcely eighteen. Her form under the tight sheath, known then as a hobble-skirt, was amazingly supple and slender, and her hands neither artistic nor stubby, were small as a child's hands should be. As they entered the orchestra were sounding the preliminary whimpers to a mexis, a tune full of castanets and facile, faintly languorous violin harmonies, appropriate to the crowded winter grill teeming with an excited college crowd, high-spirited at the approach of the holidays. Carefully, Gloria considered several locations, and rather to Anthony's annoyance, paraded him circuitously to a table for two at the far side of the room. Reaching it, she again considered, would she sit on the right or on the left? Her beautiful eyes and lips were very grave as she made her choice, and Anthony thought again how naive was her every gesture. She took all the things of life for hers to choose from in a portion, as though she were continually picking out presents for herself from an inexhaustible counter. Abstractedly, she watched the dancers for a few moments, commenting murmurously as a couple eddied near. There's a pretty girl in blue, and, as Anthony looked obediently, There! No, behind you, there! Yes, he agreed helplessly. You didn't see her. "'I'd rather look at you.' "'I know, but she was pretty, except that she had big ankles. "'Was she? I mean, did she?' he said indifferently. "'A girl's salutation came from a couple dancing close to them. "'Hello, Gloria! Oh, Gloria!' "'Hello there.' "'Who's that?' he demanded. "'I don't know. Somebody.' "'She caught sight of another face. "'Hello, Muriel.' "'Then to Anthony. There's Muriel Kane. "'Now, I think she's attractive, except not very.' "'Anthony chuckled appreciatively. "'Attractive, except not very,' he repeated. "'She smiled, and was interested immediately. "'Why is that funny?' "'Her tone was pathetically intent. "'It just was. "'Do you want to dance? "'Do you?' "'Sort of. "'But let's sit,' she decided. "'And talk about you? "'You love to talk about you, don't you?' "'Yes,' caught in a vanity, she laughed. "'I imagine your autobiography would be a classic.' "'Dick says I haven't got one.' "'Dick!' he exclaimed. "'What does he know about you?' "'Nothing. "'But he says the biography of every woman begins with the first kiss that counts "'and ends when her last child is laid in her arms.' "'He's talking from his book. "'He says unloved women have no biographies. "'They have histories.' "'Anthony laughed again. "'Surely you don't claim to be unloved.' "'Well, I suppose not.' "'Then why haven't you a biography?' Haven't you ever had a kiss that counted? As the words left his lips, he drew in his breath sharply as though to suck them back. This baby. I don't know what you mean, counts, she objected. I wish you'd tell me how old you are. Twenty two, she said, meeting his eyes gravely. How old did you think? About eighteen. I'm going to start being that. I don't like being twenty two. I hate it more than anything in the world. Being twenty two? "'No, getting old and everything, getting married. "'Don't you ever want to marry? "'I don't want to have responsibility and a lot of children to take care of.' Evidently she did not doubt that on her lips all things were good. He waited rather breathlessly for her next remark, expecting it to follow up her last. She was smiling, without amusement, but pleasantly, and after an interval half a dozen words fell into the space between them. "'I wish I had some gumdrops.' "'You shall.' He beckoned to a waiter and sent him to the cigar counter. "'Do you mind? I love gumdrops. Everybody kids me about it because I'm always whacking away at one, whenever my daddy's not around.' "'Not at all. Who are all these children?' he asked suddenly. "'Do you know them all?' "'Why, no. But they're from—oh, from everywhere, I suppose. Don't you ever come here?' "'Very seldom. I don't care particularly for nice girls.' Immediately he had her attention— She turned a definite shoulder to the dancers, relaxed in her chair, and demanded, "'What do you do with yourself?' Thanks to a cocktail, Anthony welcomed the question. In a mood to talk, he wanted, moreover, to impress this girl, whose interests seemed so tantalizingly elusive. She stopped to browse in unexpected pastures, hurried quickly over the inobviously obvious. He wanted to pose. He wanted to appear suddenly to her in novel and heroic colors. He wanted to stir her from that casualness she showed toward everything except herself. I do nothing, he began, realizing simultaneously that his words were to lack the debonair grace he craved for them. I do nothing, for there's nothing I can do that's worth doing. Well? He had neither surprised her, nor even held her, yet she had certainly understood him, if indeed he said aught worth understanding. Don't you approve of lazy men? She nodded. I suppose so, if they're gracefully lazy. Is that possible for an American? Why not? he demanded, discomfited. But her mind had left the subject and wandered up ten floors. My daddy's mad at me, she observed dispassionately. Why? But I want to know just why it's impossible for an American to be gracefully idle. His words gathered conviction. It astonishes me. It—it— I don't understand why people think that every young man ought to go downtown and work ten hours a day for the best twenty years of his life at dull, unimaginative work, certainly not altruistic work. He broke off. She watched him inscrutably. He waited for her to agree or disagree, but she did neither. Don't you ever form judgments on things? He asked with some exasperation. She shook her head, and her eyes wandered back to the dancers as she answered. I don't know. I don't know anything about— what you should do, or what anybody should do. She confused him, and hindered the flow of his ideas. Self-expression had never seemed at once so desirable and so impossible. Well, he admitted apologetically, neither do I, of course, but— I just think of people, she continued, whether they seem right where they are and fit into the picture. I don't mind if they don't do anything. I don't see why they should. In fact, it always astonishes me when anybody does anything. You don't want to do anything?" "'I want to sleep.' "'For a second he was startled, "'almost as though she had meant this literally. "'Sleep? "'Sort of. "'I want to just be lazy "'and I want some of the people around me "'to be doing things, "'because that makes me feel comfortable and safe, "'and I want some of them to be doing nothing at all "'because they can be graceful and companionable for me, "'but I never want to change people "'or get excited over them.' "'You're a quaint little determinist,' "'laughed Anthony. "'It's your world, isn't it?' "'Well,' she said, with a quick upward glance, "'Isn't it? "'As long as I'm young.' She had paused slightly before the last word, and Anthony suspected that she had intended to say beautiful. It was undeniably what she had intended. Her eyes brightened, and he waited for her to enlarge on the theme. He had drawn her out, at any rate. He bent forward slightly to catch the words. But, "'Let's dance,' was all she said. Admiration that winter afternoon at the plaza was the first of a succession of dates Anthony made with her in the blurred and stimulating days before Christmas. Invariably she was busy. What particular strata of the city's social life claimed her he was a long time finding out. It seemed to matter very little; she attended the semi public charity dances at the big hotels; he saw her several times at dinner parties and sherrys; and once, as he waited for her to dress, mrs Gilbert, apropos of her daughter's habit of going, rattled off an amazing holiday programme that included half a dozen dances to which anthony had received cards he made engagements with her several times for lunch and tea the former were hurried and to him at least rather unsatisfactory occasions for she was sleepy-eyed and casual incapable of concentrating upon anything or of giving consecutive attention to his remarks when after two of these sallow meals he accused her of tendering him the skin and bones of the day She laughed, and gave him a tea-time three days off. This was infinitely more satisfactory. One Sunday afternoon, just before Christmas, he called up and found her in the lull directly after some important but mysterious quarrel. She informed him, in a tone of mingled wrath and amusement, that she had sent a man out of her apartment, here Anthony speculated violently, and that the man had been giving a little dinner for her that very night, and that of course she wasn't going, so Anthony took her to supper. "'Let's go to something,' she proposed as I went down in the elevator. "'I want to see a show, don't you?' Inquiry at the hotel ticket-desk disclosed only two Sunday-night concerts. "'They're always the same,' she complained unhappily. "'Same old Yiddish comedians. Oh, let's go somewhere!' To conceal a guilty suspicion that he should have arranged a performance of some kind for her approval, Anthony affected a knowing cheerfulness. "'We'll go to a good cabaret.' "'I've seen everyone in town.' "'Well, we'll find a new one.' She was in wretched humour, that was evident. Her grey eyes were granite now, indeed. When she wasn't speaking, she stared straight in front of her as if at some distasteful abstraction in the lobby. "'Well, come on, then.' He followed her, a graceful girl, even in her enveloping fur, out to a taxi-cab, and, with an air of having a definite place in mind, instructed the driver to go over to Broadway, and then turn south." He made several casual attempts at conversation, but as she adopted an impenetrable armor of silence and answered him in sentences as morose as the cold darkness of the taxicab, he gave up, and, assuming a like mood, fell into a dim gloom. A dozen blocks down Broadway, Anthony's eyes were caught by a large and unfamiliar electric sign spelling Marathon in glorious yellow script, adorned with electrical leaves and flowers that alternately vanished and beamed upon the wet and glistening street. He leaned and rapped on the taxi window, and in a moment was receiving information from a colored doorman. Yes, this was a cabaret, fine cabaret, best show in a city. Shall we try it? With a sigh, Gloria tossed her cigarette out the open door, and prepared to follow it. Then they had passed under the screaming sign, under the wide portal, and up by a stuffy elevator into this unsung palace of pleasure. The gay habitats of the very rich and the very poor the very dashing and the very criminal not to mention the lately exploited very bohemian are made known to the odd high school girls of augusta georgia and red Wing, minnesota not only through the be- pictured and entrancing spreads of the sunday theatrical supplements but through the shocked and alarmful eyes of mr rupert hughes and other chroniclers of the mad pace of america but the excursions of harlem onto broadway the deviltries of the dull and the revelries of the respectable are a matter of esoteric knowledge only to the participants themselves. A tip circulates, and, in the place knowingly mentioned, gather the lower moral classes on Saturday and Sunday nights, the little troubled men who are pictured in the comics as the consumer or the public. They have made sure that the place has three qualifications. It is cheap, it imitates with a sort of shoddy and mechanical wistfulness the glittering antics of the great cafés in the theatre district, and This above all important, it is a place where they can take a nice girl, which means, of course, that everyone has become equally harmless, timid, and uninteresting, through lack of money and imagination. There on Sunday nights gather the credulous, sentimental, underpaid, overworked people with hyphenated occupations, bookkeepers, ticket sellers, office managers, salesmen, and, most of all, clerks, clerks of the express, of the mail, of the grocery, of the brokerage, of the bank. With them are their giggling, over-gestured, pathetically pretentious women, who grow fat with them, bear them too many babies, and float helpless and uncontent in a colorless sea of drudgery and broken hopes. They name these brummagem cabarets after Pullman cars. The Marathon. Not for them the salacious similes borrowed from the cafés of Paris. This is where their docile patrons bring their nice women, whose starved fancies are only too willing to believe that the scene is comparatively gay and joyous even faintly immoral. This is life. Who cares for the morrow? Abandoned people? Anthony and Gloria, seated, looked about them. At the next table a party of four were in process of being joined by a party of three, two men and a girl, who were evidently late, and the manner of the girl was a study in national sociology. She was meeting some new men, and she was pretending desperately. By gesture she was pretending, and by words, and by the scarcely perceptible motionings of her eyelids, that she belonged to a class a little superior to the class with which she now had to do, that a while ago she had been, and presently would again be, in a higher, rarer air. She was almost painfully refined, she wore a last year's hat covered in violets, no more yearningly pretentious and palpably artificial than herself. Fascinated, "'Anthony and Gloria watched the girl sit down "'and radiate the impression "'that she was only condescendingly present. "'For me,' her eyes said, "'this is practically a slumming expedition, "'to be cloaked with belittling laughter "'and semi-apologetics.' "'And the other women passionately poured out "'the impression that though they were in the crowd "'they were not of it. "'This was not the sort of place "'to which they were accustomed. "'They had dropped in because it was nearby "'and convenient. "'Every party in the restaurant poured out that impression.' Who knew? They were forever changing class, all of them, the women often marrying above their opportunities, the men striking suddenly a magnificent opulence, a sufficiently preposterous advertising scheme, a celestialized ice-cream cone. Meanwhile they met here to eat, closing their eyes to the economy displayed in infrequent changing of the tablecloths, in the casualness of the cabaret performers, most of all in the colloquial carelessness and familiarity of the waiters. One was sure that these waiters were not impressed by their patrons. One expected that presently they would sit at the tables. "'Do you object to this?' inquired Anthony. Gloria's face warmed, and for the first time that evening she smiled. "'I love it,' she said frankly. It was impossible to doubt her. Her grey eyes roved here and there, drowsing, idle or alert, on each group, passing to the next with unconcealed enjoyment, and to Anthony were made plain the different values of her profile the wonderfully alive expressions of her mouth, and the authentic distinction of face and form and manner that made her like a single flower amidst a collection of cheap bric-a-brac. At her happiness a gorgeous sentiment welled into his eyes, choked him up, set his nerves a-tingle, and filled his throat with husky and vibrant emotion. There was a hush upon the room, the careless violins and saxophones, the shrill rasping complaint of a child nearby, and the voice of the violet-headed girl at the next table all moved slowly out receded and fell away like shadowy reflections on the shining floor and they too it seemed to him were alone and infinitely remote quiet surely the freshness of her cheeks was a gossamer projection from a land of delicate and undiscovered shades her hand gleaming on the stained tablecloth was a shell from some far and wildly virginal sea then the illusion snapped like a nest of threads the room grouped itself around him voices, faces, movement, the garish shimmer of the lights overhead became real, became portentous, breath began, the slow respiration that she and he took in time with his docile hundred, the rise and fall of bosoms, the eternal meaninglessness play and interplay, and tossing and reiterating of word and phrase, all these wrenched his senses open to the suffocating pressure of life. And then her voice came at him, cool as the suspended dream he had left behind i belong here she murmured i'm like these people for an instant this seemed a sardonic and unnecessary paradox hurled at him across the impassable distances she created about herself her entrancement had increased her eyes rested upon the semitic violinist who swayed his shoulders to the rhythm of the year's mellowest fox trot. something goes ring-a-ting-a-ling-a-ling right in your ear again she spoke from the centre of this pervasive illusion of her own It amazed him. It was like blasphemy from the mouth of a child. "'I'm like they are, like Japanese lanterns in crepe-paper and the music of that orchestra.' "'You're a young idiot,' he insisted wildly. She shook her blonde head. "'No, I'm not. I am like them. You ought to see—you don't know me.' She hesitated, and her eyes came back to him, rested abruptly on his, as though surprised at the last, to see him there. I've got a streak of what you'd call cheapness. I don't know where I get it, but it's—oh, things like this and bright colors and gaudy vulgarity. I seem to belong here. These people could appreciate me and take me for granted, and these men would fall in love with me and admire me, whereas the clever men I meet would just analyze me and tell me I'm this because of this or that because of that. Anthony, for the moment, wanted fiercely to paint her, to set her down now, as she was, as with each relentless second she could never be again. "'What were you thinking?' she asked. "'Just that I'm not a realist,' he said. And then, no, only the romanticist preserves the things worth preserving. Out of the deep sophistication of Anthony an understanding formed, nothing atavistic or obscure, indeed scarcely physical at all, an understanding remembered from the romancings of many generations of minds, that as she talked and caught his eyes, and turned her lovely head, she moved him as he had never been moved before. The sheath that held her soul had assumed significance, that was all. She was a sun, radiant, growing, gathering light and storing it, then, after an eternity, pouring it forth in a glance, the fragment of a sentence, to that part of him that cherished all beauty and all illusion." End of Book 1, Chapter 2, Part 2 of 2